Hi there, I'm Ali Fogg, and when I'm not sharing half-baked opinions about football with you on the 9320 podcast team, I'm a writer and a journalist. In my volunteering time, I am also a co-founder and chair of a national charity called the Men and Boys Coalition. That's an umbrella charity for the men and boys health and wellbeing sector, so that means we provide support, advice, learning, networking opportunities and representation for charities, organisations, service providers, academics and campaigners on all kinds of men's issues. Our membership spans an awe-inspiring array of projects and activities from the likes of Andy's Man Club, the national network of social clubs that aims to combat loneliness and isolation and ultimately prevent the tragic scourge of male suicide. Or Survivors Manchester, which works to support male victims of sexual abuse and rape on their journeys of healing and recovery. We support mentoring projects that help young boys on the brink of criminalisation and exclusion, and charities helping men on the furthest margins of society, facing homelessness, addiction and all kinds of desperation. We always aim to do this in ways that encourage gender equality and social justice. We champion the welfare of all men and boys and celebrate their diversity in all respects, whatever their race and ethnicity, sexuality, gender identity, disability status or class background. And we always do our best to work alongside and never against our colleagues and friends in the women's charity and campaign sector. The other central focus of the Coalition is to promote International Men's Day in the UK, and over the past decade we've helped to nurture it as it has grown from almost nothing to become a significant event on the national calendar. On November 19th this year, we listed over 200 events happening around the country to promote men's physical and mental health, to support charities and raise awareness and funds for their work. We saw public events and gatherings, special broadcasts on TV and radio, even a debate on the issues in the House of Commons itself. Because of this work I do, almost every day I am reading and hearing about the incredible work being done around the country by charities and other organisations in every context from educational institutions to culture projects. I love to hear about the arts, music and drama projects that bring men and boys together and inspire them to find their own talents and creative ideas. Or, you may have heard about the Men's Shed movement. It's an idea that began in Australia about 15 years ago and has now spread across the UK. Sheds are places that men can go, meet other men, get involved in DIY projects or other activities, and stave off the loneliness and isolation that can be a feature of too many men's lives especially, but not always, in later life. And it is from the men's shed movement that I learned a phrase that otherwise I'd only ever have heard on the football pitch. I'm talking about the shoulder-to-shoulder challenge. As we all know, a shoulder-to-shoulder challenge on the pitch is the way we win the ball, lawfully and properly, by using our strength, balance and power to elbow the other guy out of the way. At the men's shed, the shoulder-to-shoulder challenge is when you use your strength, balance and power to help lift the other guy up. The idea goes like this. If you put any two blokes down in a room together, face-to-face, and ask them to talk about their feelings or their private life, they will often clam up. They'll stare at the floor, mutter, I'm fine, and feel awkward. But if you could put a couple of random blokes in a room together, shoulder to shoulder, and you ask them to fix a lawnmower, say, then by the time they strip down the motor, they're chatting about their mood. By the time they've unblocked the rotor blades, they might be talking about their health or their loneliness or their depression. And by the end of your session, you've got two new best mates who feel a bit better about themselves or might have resolved to see a doctor about that lump. Or who knows? Just occasionally, you might even have a working lawnmower. And that is the real shoulder-to-shoulder challenge. And of course, there is nowhere you will see this in action quite as vividly as in the world of football. I would guess most people listening to this podcast now 
will understand immediately how men bond over football. I'm only half joking when I say going to the Etihad and singing a few foul-mouthed songs about the referee is the closest many of us get to therapy. So whether it's going along to a match with our mates, our dads, our sons or our brothers, burning off our frustrations at the five-a-side or shaking off the Sunday morning hangover with the pub league team, most of us here will understand how football can bring blokes together like nothing else. And while of course women and girls are now there with us at every level of the game and football is so much better for that, it is still the case that for most of us the game still feels like our thing, our home. So it is hardly a surprise that right across the men's health and well-being sector there is a wide diversity of projects that use football to bring men together, shoulder to shoulder. There are walking football clubs that allow older men and those affected by ill health or disability to participate in the beautiful game, with just the right amount of demand on their physical fitness. There are projects that help to open access to mental health support and treatment. There are youth teams engaging young boys who have been excluded from school. You might have heard of the Homeless World Cup, or many other charitable football-based projects, which in ways big and small help men to keep it together, even if they can't always put it right. Perhaps one of the most touching and moving examples of a club like that is right here in Greater Manchester, where a few years ago a couple of friends, with the deepest of tragedy in common, set up Follow FC. Follow is spelt F-O-L-L-O, for our lost little ones. All of the players at the club are dads who have mourned the death of a child. Last week I went to meet Follow FC at their weekly training session, hosted by the generosity of Avro Football Club in Oldham, and I talked to founder member Mike Anderson. I stole him away from his training for five minutes and asked him how Follow FC had begun. Hiya, yeah, so um, follow began in uh, December 2018, um, I, I'd lost a child, I'd lost a, a daughter in 2013, um, she was tragically taken away from us, um, and I have a family friend, Gary Berkeley, he's the founder of Follow FC, uh, who tragically lost his son, age 14, um, the conversation come up where um, we'd got in contact and we decided, um, well Gary decided to, to put a team together of uh, grieving fathers of a, of a way of um, supporting each other, um, using football uh, as a means of therapy, communication, getting out, a bit of fitness uh, and mental health basically. Yeah. Um, so when you first started coming to follow, follow FC and you got it going, um, how did you feel the difference in yourself? How much difference did it make to you? How, how oh, ma- was mass- it? massively! I think for a few years, um, I, I didn't really talk about it. I didn't really, I didn't really say nothing. I was just kind of like, I was, I was, I was kind of um, in a surreal kind of dream kind of thing. Um, I basically focused on making sure. Uh, my, my family's okay, basically, um, and can't, I wouldn't say forgot about myself because I think me and my wife both did. But there is a stigma around men um, not talking, and obviously it's, it's generations and generations. We just we just meant to we're meant to be the strong ones. We meant we meant to we meant to sort of like be that shoulder kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think yeah. there's a big stigma around it which needs to be opened up. Yeah. Um, One of the ideas we're exploring in this little programme uh, is the idea of men supporting each other shoulder to shoulder. So you know, rather than looking face to face and talking to each other about their problems, you kind of talk about other things and you get on with other things, whether it's doing stuff or uh, playing football, whatever it might be. Uh, is that your experience of how follow works? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a, it's a mechanism of, of, of us getting together is talking as much as we can while we're using football um, as, as kind of that therapy and I think it does open up a lot of doors for people um, we're all different in many ways um, 
so yeah it just gives us that opportunity to sort of like open up basically and try and get that them kind of emotions off our chest and and just trying to be together and how many people are involved at the moment there's, tw there's 20 at the moment mm -hmm. um, and do you play regular games so we train every Monday um, we play charity matches as an awareness for grieving fathers as, as well as mental health as well um, we, we, we play a game maybe once a month in the summer summer months um, straight through straight through to, to December basically yeah and um, uh, I imagine uh, it's not just uh, helpful for you guys for coming down and playing but I mean you talked about your your wives you've got other family and other friends who um, how can I put it, they're probably worried about you and yeah. they're glad uh, that, that you've got a thing that you can do in a place that could, uh, a place you can go that's, that's your thing. Um, is that is that something that's really helpful for the families, the wider the wider community that this is touching? Oh yeah, definitely. And we try and get everyone involved as much as possible um, when the matches are on. Um, you know, the wives get together, the girlfriends get together, the families get together. They come out, they see us. We have uh, our angels' names and and dates of birth on our on, on our backs and. Um, we do tombola prizes and stuff and yeah we get we get all the community involved and it's basically just to shed a bit of light really on on that there's an actual place for somewhere to come because it's very difficult out there and um, there isn't a lot yeah well as uh, people will be able to hear in the background i'm keeping you from your training so thank you so much for your time as mike's story demonstrates football can be an escape for men in situations almost too difficult to imagine for others, football is our common language, a game that can bring the world and its people together, even in the most difficult of times. There are few people in this country more demonised and attacked at the moment than young male refugees and asylum seekers. Without getting too deep into the politics of all this, the simple fact is that there are many young men who have sought refuge in the UK from the most extreme horrors of the world. Their families may have been killed, they may have escaped persecution, terrorism, torture. They have almost certainly lost pretty much all of their possessions. But what many of them still have left is their love of football. Changing Lives is a community project in Harlow, Essex, that runs a range of projects aimed at turning young lives around. Earlier this year, they set up Changing Lives FC, a football team for young refugees and asylum seekers. Their founder and director is David Simmons, and if you recognise his voice, it may be because he is not only a sports coach and youth leader, he also doubles as Lord Dave on BBC Two's Ranga Nation. He generously took time out of this busy schedule to tell me about changing lives and their new football team. Yeah, so um, it all starts when I was actually threatened by a six-year-old uh, with a knife. Um, that prompted me to do more in supporting young children. Um, I felt that not enough was being done to support young young children in terms of you know what what the dangers are of what knife carrying could hold, um, and that could be including drugs, um, gang culture, etc. And I just felt that it was my duty to just change perception and, and do more for, for young people. Um, so that's when um, I just I was just like, that. I've got to do something, I've got to create something. So um, I spoke to my colleague, Ben, uh, and was like, let's create something let's, and let's call it changing lives. Let's do it what it says on the tin. Um, let's make a difference and, and let's change young people's lives. Um, so unfortunately, you know, that incident, you know, made me do something but from that we've supported over you know 2,000 young people uh, we now support refugees and asylum seekers we support families we've got two community hubs in Essex in, in Essex in Harlow and Colchester um, so from that action has propelled changing lives and has supported many other children uh, which is which is great and can I ask particularly about the uh the football club for or football team for refugees, migrants, asylum seekers. Um, what was the idea behind that and how did that come together? Yeah, so um, I was approached by our funders, Active Essex, um, and there was a lady that was running a football team. She was a social worker 
Um, and, you know, she was running the football team great, but because there was just an overwhelming number of refugees and asylum seekers that wanted to play football, it was just hard for her to manage. Um, so the funders then asked Changing Lives uh, and myself if I sort of wanted to get involved. And as soon as I saw the boys, as soon as I saw the team, I was just like, wow, this is a great opportunity. And um, it's so different from any other coaching I've, I've ever done, ever. Um, you know, working with the boys, that they come from all over the world, speaking, you know, different uh, languages. It's just, um, it's just fantastic. And it's, and it's, um, and it was great, you know, it's, it gives you a sense of purpose and it gives you a sense of, you know, understanding, you know, what these boys and, you know, girls and families actually go through, you know, seeing it in their, in their, you know, seeing it in them really. And, you know, you hear it on the media and what they say, but when you actually hear it from them, it's, it's a completely different story. One of the things I always notice about the, the particularly the media coverage in well in the current climate, but you know to a certain extent it's been going on for many years now. Um, there's a kind of dehumanisation of migrants and asylum seekers that go on, so we just kind of see this um, uh, mass of of uh, dehumanised bodies, um, and no one stops to think about the the interests, the passions, the the. Uh, the cultural lives of these mostly young men, um, and especially football. Uh, okay, you know, if you see footage from uh, uh, refugee camps, whether in you know Middle East and North Africa or Southern Europe, um, you will see people wearing Arsenal shirts, Manchester United shirts, Manchester City shirts, um, playing football, and and it is such an important part of people's lives all around the world. Um, and I'm guessing when you, when you meet these, you know, young, well, young people, particularly young men, um, that the importance of, of particularly English football must be really quite relevant to them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. When, when I speak to the boys, all they want to do is, you know, play football and, you know, they want to play in the Premier League. Um, they inspire to be the Premier League superstars. Um, you know, football is a universal sport. It's watched by millions and billions around the globe. You know, it's just it's just what makes them feel free. And, you know, football just gives them something to believe in. It, it makes them feel part of a community. And, um, you know, for that 90 minutes when they're playing on a Sunday, they just feel a sense of belonging. And, and that's what's important. And the government don't help the situation when... Um, you've got someone saying that it's an invasion and, you know, what that does is, you know, it gets, it winds up other people in the community in terms of that if they're playing a refugee team and uh, we are winning or we're doing very well, then it, it just causes a few issues. Um, you know, when we play, we've had um, racism, discrimination, and sometimes it can be really, really tough. And, so tough where I've I've actually thought to myself, is it is it worth it? You know, and, and that's where it's got really tough, where we're now fighting, you know, the case of us playing football. And, you know, we should just want to play football because they love it and they enjoy it and it's fun. But now it's such a more important issue where we're we're now fighting for refugees and um asylum seekers that we are, have the right to play football in the UK. We have the right to be on this football pitch like anyone else. And, you know, we're, these boys, these young people are inspiring other refugees and asylum seekers to get involved in football, to get involved in sports, to feel part of the community. Because when they come over to the UK, people don't see them as humans. They don't feel part of the community and they struggle. It's really uh, upsetting, <laughs> depressing to, to hear you say that. Uh, but on the, the flip side of it, one of the things we're talking about in this uh, little item program here uh, is the idea of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder support. Now, this is uh, when you know, we talk about shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder challenges in football, um, but also when, when we're working with men and men's mental health and well-being, uh, it's often said that men don't talk face-to-face, -face, they talk shoulder-to-shoulder. -shoulder. When they get involved in an activity together, they will open up. And I'm wondering how uh, how helpful and useful it is for the young people themselves to be involved in a project like uh, like Changing Lives Football and how it, it helps them you know, uh, with mental health support and, and their own sense of well-being, but also to... to you know, um, 
keep their keep their lives constructed and, and together. Yeah, like yeah, shoulder to shoulder. That that's fantastic, and you know that's what sport does. It brings people together, and you know these boys that come over have been you know abused, tortured. Um, they're from war torn countries. Yeah, so shoulder to shoulder. You know that's a, a great program, and it's an advocate. That's what you know. That's what sport does, and it. Football is is a massive contribution to supporting young people with mental health, especially the boys that you know we work with. Um, you know they they come from all around the country, but they're coming from war torn countries where they've been they're escaping war, um, murders, torture. You know, and they've seen everything. You know that we would never want to see in our lifetime. These these young people come over through the over the you know the boats under lorries and you know that's just what you shouldn't be doing when you're 15 16 17 years of age but when they come together and play for the football team they're able to talk about anything and everything you know there's boys there that have been in certain situations that other boys have been through and they can talk about it whereas you know these guys don't can't talk about it because no one else knows what they've been through but this team knows exactly what each other have been through. And I think that's why it is so important to talk about feelings and, you know, what they've been through. And especially the shoulder-to-shoulder campaign is is great for that, you know. And, and I think that is so important because uh, mental health is is a, a silent killer and it's so important to, to talk about it. You talked about maybe the... the... The, the the ugly side of of uh, meeting other teams and and facing racism on the pitch and and hostility from you know people you're involved in, I I hope and and uh, and trust that you see the other side of it as well. That people who maybe had a uh, an impression of asylum seekers and refugees and what to expect actually find they've got a very different experience when they they meet the the boys whether on the pitch or you know on the sidelines or in training or whatever. Does, does that? Uh, is my optimism uh, well placed there? Yeah, so you know we always feel that when we play, we're already two 0 down because of what people think of refugees and asylum seekers. And then hopefully at the end of the game, you know, either if we win or lose, but on their perception, we're we're now three two up, um, and that that is important. However, when when players um, say something. And it may not be a big thing for them or, you know, on football terms, it could be something like, oh, your mum or, um, you know, that, that sort of line. But these boys don't have parents over here. You know, their parents may have been murdered or killed. Um, so for them saying something so small like that is is a trigger and, a re- and could cause a reaction. Um, so it's just opening up to just being more mindful and just respecting what our boys may have gone through. Um, some people may just say it's banter, but um, unfortunately for for my boys, it's not. It's, it's reality, uh, and it's real life. But our aims and goals have always been to change perceptions of refugees and asylum seekers, and we will continue that. Um, no matter no matter what we go through, um, you know, we we always want to continue to grow the football team. We're now in other areas across Essex supporting refugees and asylum seekers. And I can see some of our boys going on to becoming semi, semi-pro semi professional players, and, and that's the aim. That was David Simmons of Changing Lives FC. You can find them on Facebook and Twitter and all the usual places. And likewise, follow FC for our lost little ones. If you or someone you know could be helped by them, they would love to hear from you. You can also find out about the Men and Boys Coalition, our members and everything we do at our website, or on Twitter at MB Coalition. For me, standing shoulder to shoulder is one of the things I think men do best. It is how we support each other best, but also how we support others. And that's why I'm proud to have produced this podcast for the Fans Supporting Food Banks campaign as part of the Manchester City fan community. And thank you for listening. Look after yourself. Look after your mates. And I'll look forward to standing by your shoulder somewhere very soon. That was Ali. Thank you very much for that piece. And Ali should be online now. Are you there, Ali? I hope I am. Can you hear me? 
bit quiet. I shall just pump up the volume. How about now? Uh, I shall try again. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can, yes. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to put that uh, together. And it was really you know, inspiring for me, <laughs> maybe for one or two people who are listening as well, I hope so. When you put it together, were you, did it still shock you in a way, the stories you've been told about, you know, the situations people put them through across the board, you know, migrants yeah, and for those who have suffered loss? Of course. Uh, I mean, I've, I've known about Follow FC for some time. I think um, when they first put the club together, they, they did the rounds of the Manchester City and United um, podcasts and, and content providers, and I've kind of been keeping an eye on them ever since. Um, and helping to publicise when they get charity games and so on. Uh, and when you hear them talk and when you think about their stories, you see them with the names of their kids on their back uh, on the strip, and it really brings it home. Um, but also the the difference that what they do makes. I mean, you can you can see these guys. You know, they're don't want to be patronising. You know, their faces faces lighting up. That you know they fill with life when they're playing football, and and that's what this amazing game can can bring to us. Um, and so, yeah, talking talking to Mike from Follow uh, was uh, uh, was a moving experience, um, but but kind of one that I was I was prepared for. Um, I think maybe the the most difficult thing about talking to Dave uh, was when he talked about meeting. Uh, oh, oh going to mute my dogs and shut them up and come back and talk to you in a second. If I could only persuade my 14-year-old to remember to bring his house key when he comes home from school, he wouldn't need to knock off. Yeah. <laughs> to Nothing triggers a dog. Yeah, like I know, dog. yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, I, I think um, the, the, the thing that shocked me perhaps most listening to Dave talking about changing lives, that he uh, talking about how, you know, after everything these boys have gone through, they go on the pitch and then they face racism and hostility and, and uh, stereotypes and stigmatisation about refugees and asylum seekers on the pitch as well. And I guess naively, I'd, I'd vaguely hoped that, you know, um, football might be free of all that. But of course, we all know it isn't. The, these, these attitudes permeate uh, uh, society in, in you know, kind of really dark and, and difficult ways. Uh, and of course, that's reflected in football pitch as well. Um, but it, it's great for me being able to talk about uh, issues that, that you know, bring together you know, my own passions and, and the things that I think about most, which is, you know, the football, obviously, but also, you know, um, all the incredible work that people around the country are doing to, to help each other out, particularly in these, you know, in these dark and difficult times. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, through the, uh, the charity work that I do, I'm particularly focused on men's issues and, and uh, the campaigns and charities that work specifically with men and boys. Uh, but the exact same thing is true when we get together to support the Food Bank campaign. Um, and I think one of the most you know, encouraging and, and one of the most inspirational things about the Food Bank campaign is the, work, the way that rival clubs, including across Manchester, mm. um, but also from Manchester to Liverpool, down to London, wherever you go, uh, the Food Bank's campaigns support each other, work for each other. Uh, and that, you know, that, that really is the best side of the game, I think. How do you talk about changing people's attitudes here? Uh, talk about the power of football. Uh, is it ultimately about keeping talking? Uh, I got a, I had a DM from the, the food bank guys earlier. It was like, and I don't mind saying it. It was a bit like, you know, I asked the club to, you know, will you retweet. Uh, they did last time. Retweet or get some exposure for this this uh, charity podcast. Get some do- obviously would help make more donations, and that hasn't happened. Obviously, you keep. Uh, chipping away at football clubs to get this cooperation, but they they made a very good point in there that this is it's all worthwhile because it gets people talking. The more you keep doing this, and you know, getting exposure is a great thing. And when you talk about refugees and on a football pitch and what you know, and obviously the diatribes you see online and their attitudes that we're seeing in the news at the moment, the political side of things, and also men's mental health which some may say isn't given enough attention obviously suicide is such a huge killer of men you know more than women is the key here to change attitudes across the board on all these issues is the key is just just keep talking keep getting exposure and keep publicizing these things to change people's attitudes and to change how people think about this I mean, it has to be. It's about keeping talking. I think the other thing, particularly when we're talking about men's mental health and suicide prevention, uh, there's another really important thing we can all do, and it's not just keep talking. It's keep listening. 
yeah. because very often um, there, there's been so much focus over the last kind of ten years or so, probably. Um, since you know, you're quite right to say suicide affects men much more commonly than women. It's about three quarters of all suicides, uh, completed suicides in the UK, are men, and um, there's been this chorus: uh, "Oh, men, you've got you, you know, you've got to speak. You've got to talk to your you know, talk to your mates." Talk to each other, you know, talk, phone a helpline, talk to your doctor, talk to your psychiatrist, talk to your therapist or whatever. And all of that is okay up to a point. But actually what, what men are saying a lot of the time is, look, I have problems. I have problems with debt. I have problems because I you know, can't see my children. I have problems I'm unemployed. I, I'm in poor physical health, whatever it might be. And I need help with those in order to sort out my mental health. And when you're just telling people to, you know, just open up and talk about your feelings, um, that's all very well, but it's only half the story. And and one of the great things about practical uh, projects, you know, whether they're talking sports clubs like the football clubs we've been talking to, or the men's sheds, or the kind of drama projects that mm. you'll encounter around. And one of the really good things about those is it's not just about talking, it's about doing. Um, and it's about finding, helping people find solutions for you know the actual real real world problems that they have. Um, one one of the things we talk about a lot at the Men and Boys Coalition is how these issues are never in isolation. Um, if you've got a man who might be a, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, which is you know far more common than any of us like to think about, um, it's likely that not only will he have issues recovering from that direct trauma. Um, he may well have been self-medicating with drink and drugs and developed a drink problem or a drug mm. problem. Um, he may, because of that, uh, fall into you know, criminal behaviours to, to support his addictions. He then, may then become homeless. Um, and all these separate issues, and, and you know, obviously from there, you know, huge implications from physical and mental health. Um, and often when you start talking about these issues, when you start unpicking them, you find it's not only really difficult to say, you know, which man you're talking about at any given one time, because often it's the same men, um, mm. but it's not even clear where one issue ends and the next one begins. Um, but what you can do is, is you know, uh, kind of a bit like getting uh, getting your fingernails into a in, in, into the seam, into the crack, and, and start unpicking the problems. Um, once you've got people together in a football team, once you've got people together in a uh, a music uh, you know, a band forming, you know, forming a middle-aged men form, forming a band is one of the best things they can do for their <laughs> mental health. Um, yeah. It's not so good for the people who have to listen to them, obviously. I, I say this as a 55-year-old musician, <laughs> but the people playing it's absolutely <laughs> great. Um, and you know, and those kind of you know, actual activities are, are so much more helpful and, and constructive for an awful lot of people um, than just you know. Uh, Getting access to a therapist, which you know, may be important, but it's not the end, it's not the be all and the end all, um, and that's why I love you know projects like Follow FC makes such a huge difference. Hmm. When you went down to Follow FC, what was going on there? What sort of things were going on? What activities did you see down there? Well, they were having a quiet week apparently because quite a lot of their uh, their guys were away. It didn't sound like it, I know. Um, but uh, <laughs> there's uh, Avro, a, a fabulous non-league football club in Oldham. Yeah. Um, some people listening may, may know or been it, and and so they they hire out their facilities. So you could actually hear there was a there was a youth club or quite a young team uh, training uh, on the um, pitch next to where we were <laughs> next to where we were talking. So you could hear very young voices screaming. Um, and then uh, they follow FC got together, and when I saw them, there was about twelve of them, I think, had got together, and they were. Uh, they were behaving much like any other kind of mixed ability football club. I would say a bit like a pub team or a you know a, a works team or whatever it might be. Uh, there were some people that looked like they could step out and you know, if not play for Manchester City, then at least you know turn out a good performance for Stockport County or something. And then there were other guys who looked like you know <laughs> they they had got themselves up out of their armchair and it was a real achievement to get themselves down there on the pitch. <laughs> Uh, and that and that's part of the beauty of it, you know. Yeah, it's a mixability thing, and, and they, you they, don't want to be excluded. They could play for um, Germany or Argentina, surely. <laughs> you know what? I was taking I was taking those noisy, annoying dogs out for a walk, uh, and I left at one nil. I, I didn't even bother. I was listening to you guys. I was listening to the uh, um, the Mineral Gramble lads while I was walking the dogs, um, and I came back and, and then I heard you say Japan had just beat Germany. What? Okay. <laughs> 
So anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite absorbed that one. Yeah, I'm going to go away and watch the highlights as soon as it's possible. Say what we like about this World Cup. At least the football on the pitch has been moderately entertaining, and, and we've had we've had a few. Uh, yeah, we do yeah. love it. Do love an, an upset. Indeed. Uh, just could talk personally about you. Uh, the, yeah, mm. the, you talked about the Men and Boys Coalition, the shoulder to shoulder, of course. Have you always, from a young age, been involved in these sort of initiatives, or is it something that's you've become more and more involved with in time? And how how yeah. involved are you on a you know as part of your life in these yeah, many it, it, many initiatives yeah. that are around that it most people won't know about? Will they? Of course, yeah. Um, and in my case, when I was always involved in politics and kind of uh, yeah. uh, campaigning, and particularly in, in the nineteen eighties, I was very involved in things. I mean, I should say I'm getting on a bit. So. My, the, the first part of my adult life, I was involved in things like Amnesty International quite heavily um, and you know, international solidarity campaigns and that kind of stuff. Um, in the 90s, uh, when after I moved to Manchester, I was one of those, um, I, I was one of those characters in the uh, like ridiculous bubble hats getting carried out of a tree on the, uh, on the path of a digger <laughs> at the M66 and various other places. Um, I, I, one of my claims to fame, I was actually on Have I Got News For You once, not as a guest, but in a bit of footage, getting carried out <laughs> of a tree. I was, being, I was being lifted out of a tree in a shopping trolley, um, and I had the honour of having Paul Martin say, oh, there's some Wally in a shopping trolley, and that was me. <laughs> that I was hope you have the footage still, yeah. I, 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 it was an old VHS somewhere, and I hope the BBC have still got it somewhere, and, and you know, when, when, I, uh, when I finally um, hit the news for some nefarious explanation that they'll be able to dig it out for you <laughs> but um but no that, that was in the 90s but then um from my point of view it was, it was really after uh well my first son and then i had a second son um when i found myself dad to two boys i began thinking much more about the kind of world we were bringing boys into and mm. as a, i was writing a lot of uh, opinion journalism at the time as one of the terrible people turning out hot takes for the guardian for for a living um, and I wrote a lot about the politics of men and boys issues. Um, and I was one of the few journalists in the country who was doing that. Uh, and that was kind of how I got involved in, in the issues we were talking about today. Um, and really, it was because nobody else was talking about it. Which, you know, as, a, as a freelance journalist, one of the things you have to do is find your niche, find the thing that, that you can talk about that you know, people will come to you if they want a, if they want a commission. Um, and it, I kind of, to begin with, I kind of fell in just sort of fell into it um and then as i got more and more involved and because i was i was writing about you know actual uh campaigns and charities and people who are making a difference it's really hard not to get sucked into it and in the same way as you know doing this brings you closer to the food bank campaign brings us closer mm. to the food bank campaigns um you kind of feel part of it um and so you know really uh, how did i end up campaigning uh on you know men's health and well-being issues uh, really just because nobody else was doing it and I saw a need there. Um, but also, I, I, I guess it's something, I'd always been interested in you know, gender politics. I, I kind of grew up thinking of myself as a you know, uh, pro-feminist man or you know, however you want to describe it. And I, I read quite a lot of feminist writing and, and stuff about gender. Um, and then when I began to apply that to men's lives, uh, I was kind of looking for ways of understanding it that were a bit more, uh, you know, Bit more constructive than just oh that's yeah. useless men with their toxic masculinity again, which you know too many of these conversations come back to. Uh, so you know, I, I, like most things in life, I I kind of tumbled down down the path of least resistance and I find myself <laughs> where I am. But it was I, I you know if you'd asked me 25 years ago would I end up doing what I'm doing now? Of course, I'd probably imagine something very different. Yeah. Um, but if you told me that I'd be doing what I'm doing now, I would be you know quite happy and proud about that as a as a prospect. Uh, before we talk about football uh, and its link to its power and mm. it, its uh, effect on mental health, to finish off this, yeah, I think you were inspired to do this PC as part of the charity podcast. This was charity podcast was originally going to be last week. International Men's Day was that on Saturday? Just gone? It was, yeah. yeah. Can I ask you about International Days uh, now? If you go on Twitter and obviously getting. Uh, a cross-section of Twitter as a guide to how the world <laughs> thinks is a very dangerous policy whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But most of it is tribalistic nonsense about international days, asking why men don't have to, why, when are the women's one, blah, 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 what's the point of them? Could you could you actually, I think it'd be nice if people understood their purpose. Yeah. What 
purpose and what's the power of these international days that they can serve? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really interesting point you made because when uh, this, the work that I do with International Men's Day actually came before the Men and Boys Coalition. The Men and Boys Coalition grew out of a little committee that formed itself to help promote International Men's Day as right. a concept in the UK. Um, and we kind of realised that one day a year really wasn't enough and, and it grew into a, a you know, school charity. Um, but you know where we began back in 2011, 2012, um, International Men's Day existed purely and simply as a punchline. Um, it mostly appeared on March the 8th, International Women's Day, when people all over Twitter and other social media would think they were being incredibly witty by replying to stuff at International Women's Day by saying, so when's International Men's Day? Yeah. Um, and then when people pointed out that actually there is an International Men's Day that was originally founded in the late 80s by a, uh, an academic in Trinidad, I think Trinidad and Tobago, um, and was originally conceived as a kind of uh, positive fathering, fatherhood uh, campaign. Um, but the, uh, it was given the date of, of November 19th, which is the, the founder, uh, his father's birthday. Um, and so November 19th would come around, and the only thing anyone had to say about International Men's Day was, I thought every day was International Men's Day. Now, of course, there's a, there's a reason why people make that joke, and, and uh, you know, we, we live in a society, and some people would call patriarchal, and, and you know, men are in charge of most things and, and don't always make a very good job of it. So that's an entirely um, legitimate jibe. Mm. But um, when you actually start looking at issues like male suicide, and you, you start asking why is it that you know, three-quarters of the suicides are men, and why is suicide the number one killer of men under the age of 50 in, in the UK? Um, and when you start talking about issues like men's mental health, like male-specific cancers, um, you know, International Men's Day came before November, um, but November was a hugely uh, kind of, uh, it was a breakthrough moment for the, for the men's health sector. Uh, it was one, the first thing that really caught on in a big way in, in terms of um, people taking an active interest in specifically you know, male gender specific issues. Um, and it all started to come together. And what we had in mind always was International Men's Day could and should be a day where uh, all these charities and campaigns and organizations that, of the type that we've been talking about today, um, they could promote their work, they could maybe raise a bit of funds, um, but particularly they could they could uh, you know, raise awareness of the the, kind of the complexity and, and the depth of the issues that, are, that affect men. Um, because one of the, you know, for all the truth about men ruling the world and, you know, most of the you know, corporate boardrooms are packed with men, most of politics is packed with men, most of the, uh, the, the civil service and the bodies and the NGOs that run the world are all packed with men. One of the things that men are very bad at doing is talking about ourselves, talking about men. So the fact that, um, you know, the, the government is absolutely, or the cabinet is absolutely rammed with men doesn't mean that men's issues are going to get a good look in. Actually, the opposite mm. is true. Um, men tend to not want to talk about their own issues, and that's true personally, but also true at a political level as well. Um, anyone who wants to talk about male-specific gender issues is normally assumed to be coming from a kind of misogynistic place where you know, what you're actually trying to do is, is undermine feminist campaigns or whatever. Um, and we always said from the beginning that there has to be a way that we can you know, there has to be a route that we can navigate through those sticky waters. You know, there has to be a way of doing this in a way that's positive and constructive. Um, and you know, I'm really proud that you know it's about ten years on since we started promoting International Men's Day, and now there are, as I said in the, I said in the item, there's uh, you know there was a debate in the House of Commons last week. Um, I, I think because it was Saturday this year, there weren't as many uh, visible things. But you know, last year, loose women became loose men for the day. You know, those kind of things. Um, that, that you know, not one of them will make a, a world-changing difference in its own right. But the, just the collection of it has, has led to a greater acceptability and an understanding. Um, and so when it does come, you know, when we do come to talk about things like uh, men's loneliness in later life, um, we're starting to have the language and the, the kind of intellectual tools to be able to understand that and accept it. And it's not, you, know, you don't have a battle to fight just to get the issue raised. People are like, okay, you know, that that's a legitimate cause for concern, and let's talk about what we can do about it. Um, so it is. It's often felt like kind of 
two steps backwards and or two steps forward and three steps back and sometimes vice versa. Uh, but you know, we, little by little, I think we're we're in a much better place than we were a decade ago in terms of understanding these issues. Yeah, bring it around to football to finish off. Then mm. uh, you talk about shoulder to shoulder and sheds. Uh, I live in a flat, can't have a shed. So. <laughs> <laughs> and b- boy, do, does that uh, yeah, does that disappoint me not having my own shed? But but the power of football in the same way is in, is infinite in many ways in getting men together and talking. Something yeah. I feel happens more. You know, I've written a script about uh, a group of men who sit in a pub before a match and never talk to each other. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only one who'll ever see it. But then one of them becomes ill and they start talking for the first time yeah. ever. Uh, but I think it's something that comes with age as well. Uh, but the power of football is that is infinite in many ways, as you showed in your piece, as well as just generally to bring people together and to get people to talk and to form bonds, relationships, friendships and more. Yeah, I, mean, I think often the, the most valuable talking and listening that we do as, as blokes um, is when we're not actually directly talking about our issues. Um, that we, you know, we're getting, we might be getting absolutely, furiously, outrageously angry with a referee. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like all of our, you know, frustrations and, and pent up uh, angers and emotions are, are getting poured into like this penalty decision or whatever. And that's when you say to your mate, it's like, well, you know, yeah, actually, let's get over it. <laughs> okay, it's happened. Yeah. Let's move on. And kind of when you when you move on from that, you, you move on from all the other stuff as well. And that actually you can pour an awful lot of, of um, a, a lot of issues indirectly into into the emotional engagement that we have with football. Uh, like so you learn to process, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that's it. Learn to process it, but also, you know, sometimes you you need to get your anger out, or you need to get your frustration. Out. You know, like um, any of us, you know, ever wrestled with you know, anxiety and depression or whatever, you can you can have that feeling where you're going about with like a, a a real feeling of a knot in your stomach, like there's something really tying you up inside, mm. and you can't really get rid of it until you go down and you shout abuse at a referee for. <laughs> For <laughs> 45 minutes. Now, I had that little throwaway remark in the, in the piece about how, uh, you know, singing Paolo's songs that the referee is the closest many of us get to therapy. And actually, I do kind of believe that. It does us a lot of good. Um, and I think, you know, just the, the emotional bonding that we have with our mates and the people around us. You know, even I, I got football matches on my own quite often um, because I'm Billy No Mates and I'm antisocial. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when, you know, when I do, you get chatting to the guys beside you. Um, and you kind of you feel a sense of community. You don't even need to have your best mates or your brother or your dad there beside you in order to get that kind of really. Um, it's a it, it's a sense of uh, a sense of community. I think is what it is. It's, you know, yeah. we, we we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And it, it yeah, football is amazing for for being able to channel our emotions. Um, and you know the. I, I would challenge anyone to get through 90 minutes of, of emotionally demanding uh, uh, Premier League football or international football, whatever it might be, and come out and actually not feel a bit better about themselves. Even if the game has gone badly, something about it puts everything else into perspective and it makes it easier to deal with the rest of it. And maybe that's just me, but you know, it really is. Um, I've, I've got a T-shirt that says, Music is my therapy. Um, and that's kind of true, but actually more true if I had one saying football is my therapy, so I think it really is. Yeah, well, I'm not good at processing defeats and never have been, so I'm probably not the best person <laughs> to talk about this. But also, I've got a circle of friends, you know, due to football, of probably about 50 people. And mm. I'll be honest, it's not due to my sparkling personality. It's, <laughs> that circle exists because of Manchester City yeah. Football Club, simply because of that. And... I could go to a match by myself. I could walk into pubs by myself, plenty of them in Manchester, and find someone to talk to as an introvert. You know, I consider myself an introvert because I know these people through football and what an an amazing circle of friends and, yeah, kinship that's been built up. And the amazing thing is we don't talk about football much, to be honest. We don't actually talk about football much. Uh, I've got, yeah, I've got friends who, bad defeat, they can... Half an hour later, it's gone. It's in the past. 
let's have a beer. Uh, but for me, it's a bit difficult. Uh, so finished, uh, linking to that, I'm going to finish with that, mental health and football fandom. Can it actually be dangerous for mental health? I, I don't say that as a joke, you know. No. Because we rely, because for me, it has been quite difficult. It is ruined, you know, imagine the 1990s, uh, yeah. awash with Saturday nights of me in a strop. But we rely so much on something out of our control after all. You're depending on something going well to alter your mood. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. And it's one that I probably should have made myself earlier because this is all about actually finding ways to process football healthily uh, for our own mental health. And, you know, I, you know, I've had friends um, who, have, who have had to stop following football because actually you know, their, their mental health was uh, crumbling or, or you know, cracking at the seams mm. and football was, was tipping them over the edge. You know, they, they couldn't handle the stress involved. Uh, and of course, you know, self-care is the most important thing. Um, so yeah, um, I, I would, I, I don't know if I've got any practical advice, but I think it is really important um, that we remember to to uh, to channel all of that stuff in ways that, that, you know, make us feel better about it and, and not allow ourselves to, to dwell on, you know, you know the downsides and, and get you know, actually become depressed by it because that kind of defeats the entire purpose of all of it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, we've had a good 12 years for so as City fans, <laughs> yeah. but I still wonder if City have been good for my health. Uh, my hair colour suggests no <laughs> because I'm pretty sure when we got taken over, I didn't have any grey hair. So now we have, <laughs> that's all. I get I the have. other thing. I mean, what, what would we we'd be doing instead is the other thing. Um, yeah, exactly, football, yeah, football takes up a huge amount of our, our uh, energies and, and our emotional attention uh, and our literal attention. Um, and you know, if it, you know, would we just be drinking ourselves to oblivion if we didn't have football to watch? I suspect I probably would be. Uh, can't speak for anyone else. Uh, so while you know, while I, I do like a pint with the football, uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure that I. Uh, I'm not entirely sure it's the football that's driving me to it. I think more more often than not, the football is uh, is yeah giving me another another string to the bow. Yeah, and what better way to for men to regularly hug other men than absolutely <laughs> than watching football together? Because yeah, last twelve years has been okay. Uh, but yeah, I'd say the power of football is astonishing, but it's not all good in a way. Yeah. Uh, but it brings people together, I think, is the perfect way to describe and sport as a whole, perhaps. Yeah. Look after yourselves out there, I think is what we're saying here, Howard, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and, yeah, and talk. Talk to yeah. your friends. And look if, after yourself, look after each other. Yeah, because we don't talk enough. That's yeah. blindingly obvious as men. So if you need to talk to someone, do just do that. Yeah. Ali? Time has defeated us. Thank you very, very much for that piece and for coming to chat to me afterwards. It's been fascinating stuff. Uh, we'll put it out as a separate piece tomorrow in the next couple of days so people can, you know, really need more people to to listen to that Then they can listen to it at their leisure. So thank you very much again for coming on and doing all that. Absolute pleasure. Uh, all my love to all the 9320 and the whole City Content family. And, yeah, let's do our bit for the food banks because that's why we're here. Indeed. Okay, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you very much.